Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. As I've said before, I don't usually give disclaimers. However, this episode deals with severe abuse, mistreatment, and neglect of a child, so listener discretion is advised. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. If you'd like to email the host directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon. Any donation level helps, and it will ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. That's truebluecrimeproductions at patreon.com. And for no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to. Now, without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. The year 1965 lies smack dab in the middle of some major events in American history. The Historic Voting Rights Act passes, which was a monument to the progress of the civil rights movement led by Martin Luther King Jr. and his march in Alabama. NASA was ramping up the Gemini program for the birth of the Apollo program, and Americans died overseas in Vietnam, on the streets of LA during the Watts riots, and at the mercy of Mother Nature during the Palm Sunday tornado outbreak. But for one teenage girl in 1965, her promising young life went from listening to the Beatles to some of the most unspeakable abuse and torture anyone can imagine. Worst of all, it wasn't at the hands of some psychopathic pedophile, but from the family she had been entrusted to. This is the story of the horror endured by Sylvia Likens in that summer and fall of 1965. So who is Sylvia Likens? Sylvia Likens was born on January 3, 1949. She was the middle child of five children, and her four siblings were sets of twins. Her older set of twin siblings, Daniel and Diana, were two years older, and her younger set of twin siblings were Benny and Jenny, one year younger than Sylvia. Her parents were Lester and Elizabeth, and they were carnival workers with an unstable marriage. They lived in post-war Indiana, and times were tough for the Likens family. The Likens boys, Daniel and Benny, often traveled with their parents from carnival to carnival to assist with the family business of selling candy, beer, and soda. The three girls were often left behind with relatives out of concern for their safety in the carnival and to ensure they received a proper education. Prone to severe financial difficulties, the family got by however they could. Once Sylvia was old enough, she would earn cash from jobs such as babysitting and ironing and give the money to her mother to help pay for food for her siblings. Sylvia was described as a pretty girl with wavy hair and a cute smile, but she never smiled with her mouth open because she had lost a permanent tooth at age 7 while roughhousing with her brother and was ashamed of the gap in her teeth. Her younger sister Jenny had contracted polio and lost strength in one of her legs. This required her to wear a brace and hindered her movement. But Sylvia was always looking out for a younger sister and would take her many places with her. Now, from what I could find in the research, the Likens family business occurred mainly during carnival season, which is in the Midwest, is mainly the summer. So while attending school during the school year, Sylvia made friends with some girls named Paula and Stephanie Banaszewski. When it came time to pack up and head out for the carnival season, Lester and Elizabeth came to terms with Paula and Stephanie's mother, Gertrude, to board their younger daughters for the summer and into November of that year. They agreed to pay Gertrude $20 a week to shelter, feed, and care for the girls. I did the conversion and $20 in 1965 is equivalent of roughly $200 a week today. 
And while that may not seem like a lot, the girls were 16 and 15 and the money was mainly used to cover the cost of food. So it does seem more than reasonable. Gertrude ensured the Likens that she would care for the daughters as if they were her own. The girls moved in with the Banazuskis just after the 4th of July holiday. By all accounts, the first few weeks went by without any issues. Sylvia was said to have sang along to pop records with Stephanie, and the girls all attended Sunday school together. But by late July, the payments from the Lycans started arriving late. And I can only imagine this is due to the fact that the Lycans family relied on that money from the carnival, and I'm sure they had their good weeks and bad weeks, and sometimes they did not have enough money to send home. Gertrude would take out the frustration due to the lack of money on both of the Lycans girls by using corporal punishment against them. She would mainly use a quarter-inch thick paddle to strike the girls' bare buttocks while yelling at them that she had taken care of them for a week and that she wasn't getting paid. Sometime in the middle of August, the anger from Gertrude shifted from both girls to just Sylvia. By then, the girls were back in school, but Sylvia was the subject of regular physical abuse at the hands of Gertrude during the hours after school and on the weekends. It is believed this anger was the result of severe jealousy that Gertrude had due to the fact that Sylvia was young, smart, beautiful, and full of potential. The physical abuse began to be accompanied by periods of starvation, and when she wasn't being starved, Sylvia was forced to eat either the leftovers from the other children, or in extreme circumstances, she was fed spoiled food out of the garbage. As bad as things were getting for Sylvia, they were about to get worse. In late August, Sylvia was overheard telling someone that she had a boyfriend in Long Beach, California, that she had met when her family had traveled there. Gertrude asked Sylvia if she had done anything with this boy, and not understanding the direction Gertrude was asking Sylvia to go with her answer, Sylvia replied, I guess so. She would later explain that what she meant to say was that she had gone skating and to the park and to the beach with her boyfriend, and she did not mean to imply that she had sex with him. However, she did admit to laying under the covers with her boyfriend, but stated she didn't know why she did it, and it's unsure if that meant she had sex with him. For a few days later, Gertrude was still badgering Sylvia about the boyfriend and told Sylvia that she looked like she was getting big in the stomach and it looked like she would have a baby. Sylvia, thinking Gertrude must have been joking with her patted her stomach and said she was just getting big and would need to go on a diet. But Gertrude was not kidding and told all the girls that if they did anything with a boy, they would get pregnant and end up like Sylvia. She then kicked Sylvia in the crotch and Paula, who was Gertrude's daughter, joined in and knocked Sylvia off her chair, telling her that she wasn't fit to sit in a chair. I found this extremely ironic because at this time, it was reported that Paula was actually pregnant. However, I could not find in the reporting if Gertrude knew that Paula was pregnant and if this was her taking out her anger at Paula's pregnancy on Sylvia or whether, again, she did not know about the pregnancy and was trying to promote abstinence through fear. The abuse continued and during one supper, Gertrude watched as Randy Lepper, a neighborhood boy, force-fed Sylvia a hot dog that was overloaded with mustard and other spices. This caused Sylvia to vomit, and Gertrude made her eat the mess that she made. Having reached a breaking point, Sylvia decided to go on the offensive to take some of the pressure off. She started a rumor at the school that the Banazuski girls were prostitutes. This rumor spread, and after a boy propositioned Stephanie, 
She asked him who started the rumor, and he said Sylvia. Stephanie attacked Sylvia. However, she would later apologize and cry with Sylvia over the attack. But so did Stephanie's boyfriend, a 15-year-old named Coy Hubbard. And I read that Coy actually uh, punched Sylvia and then slammed her head against the wall due to her spreading this rumor about his girlfriend. Now then Gertrude's going to find out, and afterwards she beat Sylvia with a paddle. The physical abuse did not just come from Gertrude. Paula had taken to hitting Sylvia and hit her so hard one day that she broke her own wrist on Sylvia's face. Paula used the cast on her wrist to inflict more pain on Sylvia via, via future beatings. Stephanie's boyfriend, Coy Hubbard, regularly came over to the house and took his turns both physically and emotionally torturing Sylvia. It would often be a group effort as they all took turns burning her with lit cigarettes and punching and kicking her, and they often would target her genitals, causing severe injuries. Sylvia was often sexually abused as well, being made to strip naked and walk around the house and be humiliated in front of the rest of the family. Her only exit from the abuse, which was school, came to an end when Gertrude refused to let her attend school after she got caught stealing a gym suit. Sylvia needed the gym suit for school, and Gertrude refused to pay for one, so Sylvia had to resort to stealing one, and after getting caught, her punishment was that she could no longer attend school, and she was beat beaten with a three-inch police belt. Stephanie tried to stand up for Sylvia at times, but Gertrude just abused Sylvia more when this happened. Gertrude did take out some anger on Jenny as well, often whipping her with a belt, like after one time when she stole a gym shoe from the school that Gertrude refused to pay for. Around this time, Sylvia and Jenny ran into their older sister at a park while watching Gertrude's youngest daughter, Marie. Sylvia, having been starved as punishment, asked Diana for a sandwich. Neither girl had mentioned the dire situation to Diana for fear of retaliation. Gertrude's daughter, Marie, told Gertrude about Sylvia eating the sandwich, and Sylvia was beaten and placed in a bath of scalding hot water for her sin of, quote, gluttony, end quote. A neighborhood boy would tell his father about the abuse, and the father phoned the school to report it. A worker came out to the Banaszewski residence, and Gertrude lied and said Sylvia ran away and had been a bad influence on her daughters. The school never again investigated the claim. A few weeks later, and with the abuse worsening, the girls again ran into Diana in the park. This time, they were alone, and they told her about the abuse, but Diana thought they were exaggerating, and she couldn't believe the abuse would be that bad. However, shortly after the meeting, Diana thought about it, and the stories bothered her so much that she planned on making a visit to her sisters, but didn't know the address. Diana would discover the address, and on October 1st, she visited the residence, but was denied access by Gertrude. Two weeks later, Diana ran into Jenny, and when asked how they were doing, Jenny told her, Quote, I can't tell you or I'll get in trouble, end quote. Meanwhile, the girl's parents had made a few visits to the residence. Gertrude made sure the girls looked clean and healthy for these visits and threatened them that if they had said anything about the abuse, she would make things a lot worse. The last time the parents would visit the girls was October 5th. Now, despite all the horrors you've heard about that Sylvia has had to endure up to this point, her parents' last visit would mark the worst chapter in this already terrible story. Having lost control of her bladder due to the savage beatings, 
that often targeted her genital region and her kidneys. Silva, Sylvia was often wetting her bed at night. On October 6th, Gertrude tied Sylvia up in the basement and told her she would remain down there until she stopped wetting herself. The only time Sylvia would get a reprieve from the tortures and beatings that she endured from almost all members of the Bandazuski family and some neighborhood kids was when they would watch their favorite TV shows. In an almost impossible story of inhumanity, in a story filled with inhumanity, Gertrude would allow neighborhood kids to pay her five cents and then they could commit acts of torture on Sylvia as she was tied up in the basement. Her only baths were in scalding hot water and Gertrude and the kids would restrain her in the bath and rub salt in her wounds. In addition to the torture, Sylvia was starved and denied water. She was once given a bowl of soup with no spoon, and when Sylvia reached for it, Gertrude's son, John, would laugh and take it away. By October 22nd, Sylvia had endured two weeks of the most evil acts against her, and the lack of all basic necessities was taking its toll on her body. Gertrude allowed Sylvia to sleep in a bed upstairs that night, on the promise that she wouldn't wet the bed. However, before she went to sleep, Sylvia begged Jenny to get her a glass of water to drink. The next morning, Sylvia had wet the bed, and Gertrude threw her back into the basement. That same day, Gertrude tried branding Sylvia with the words, quote, I am a prostitute and proud of it, end quote, on her abdomen with a heated needle. When Gertrude failed to be able to do this, she ordered one of the neighborhood boys, a 14-year-old named Richard Hobbs, to do it. He would later also try to burn a letter S below Sylvia's left breast with an anchor bolt, but messed up and burned the number three instead. That night she told her sister Jenny that she was going to die. On October 5th, Gertrude and her son, John, were discussing what to do with Sylvia. They knew her health was failing and they didn't want to get in trouble, so they concocted a plan to abandon her somewhere remote to die and then tell everyone that she ran away. Sylvia overheard the plan and tried to escape, but she was too weak. Gertrude noticed Sylvia's malnutrition and tried to reverse it by feeding Sylvia crackers, but Sylvia was too dehydrated to produce the saliva needed to eat the crackers, and so Gertrude tried to beat the crackers down her throat with a curtain rod. The strikes were so severe they bent the curtain rod. Coy Hubbard delivered one final blow that knocked Sylvia unconscious and then drug her back down to the basement. Sylvia came to during the night and tried to raise the alarm with neighbors by hitting the walls of the basement with a spade. One neighbor did hear the noise and thought about calling the police, but declined to do so and the noise ceased at 3 a.m. On the morning of October 26th, Sylvia was near death. Gertrude tried to feed her a donut and some milk, but she was too weak and delirious to eat. Sylvia was sent back to the basement and began to moan and only speak in short, mumbled sentences. That afternoon, Gertrude's son washed Sylvia with a garden hose, and Sylvia made one last escape effort. This was stopped by Gertrude, who stomped on her head after Sylvia collapsed short of the stairs. Richard Hobbs was sent down to clean Sylvia again later that evening, and he came across Stephanie holding Sylvia's emaciated and beaten body, and Stephanie was crying. Stephanie and Richard decided to give Sylvia a warm bath and clean her up and put her in new clothes. After being cleaned up and laid down on a mattress, Sylvia muttered that she wished her daddy was here and then stopped breathing. Stephanie tried to do mouth to mouth and everyone was screaming and Gertrude came to the room and said Sylvia was faking it. She started beating Sylvia with a book and telling her her to stop faking it. When Gertrude realized Sylvia wasn't 
breathing, she instructed Richard Hobbs to run to a payphone and call the police. The police arrived and Gertrude led them to her body. Gertrude handed the police officer a letter she had forced Sylvia to write before her death. She claimed Sylvia had run away with some boys and when she returned she was all beaten up and had the note in her hand. Jenny recited the tale to the officers in front of Gertrude, just like she had been told to do, under the threat of meeting Sylvia's fate if she didn't, but when she was done and Gertrude wasn't paying attention, Jenny whispered to one of the officers to get her out of there and she would tell them everything. Officers were able to take a formal statement from Jenny in which she outlined the months-long abuse and torture they had endured. This prompted officers to arrest Gertrude, Paula, Stephanie, and John Banaszewski within hours of seeing Sylvia's body. Richard Hobbs and Coy Hubbard were also arrested for their involvement in the case. Initially, like the evil coward she was, Gertrude denied any involvement with the abuse and death of Sylvia. She blamed her older children and the two boys for the injuries and death, stating that Paula did most of the damage and Coy did a lot of the beating. She would admit to making Sylvia sleep in the basement on three evenings due to her wetting the bed, but didn't agree with the officer when he told her that Sylvia's incontinence was due to the damage sustained during the beatings. The Banaszewski children did admit their role in the abuse, however, they often downplayed the severity and frequency of the abuse and showed no remorse for their actions. Five more neighborhood children were arrested and charged with assault. They were released to their parents, but subpoenaed to testify against the main suspects. The autopsy of Sylvia revealed she was extremely emaciated at the time of her death and had over 150 separate wounds on her body. These wounds included burns, severe bruising, and extensive muscle and nerve damage. Surprisingly, the likely cause of death for Sylvia was a subdural hematoma due to a severe blow to her right temple, but the malnutrition and shock her body was experiencing due to the extreme damage to it were contributing factors to her death. Rigor mortis was present at the time her body was discovered, indicating Sylvia had likely been dead for around eight hours before the police were called. It appears that she had been bathed post-death and was likely cleaned up to be more presentable when officers arrived. So before we get into the charges, I'm just going to address some of the stuff here in the investigation. I guess the best way to put this is I relayed the story as it was researched and Unfortunately, since Sylvia wasn't around to tell her side of the story and Jenny probably didn't see everything, it's likely that some parts of this story, mainly Sylvia's last days, we are getting that information from the suspects. So based on that last statement in there about the rigor mortis was present at the time her body was discovered, this is, this is something that cannot happen at death that it does take time for this to happen in the body and now there are some factors that will change that time to a certain degree whether it be temperature and and even the the condition of the body at the time of death can change it but we're talking about changing in a few hours not eight hours so it was impossible that at the time of her death the police were called and it is very very likely that when uh, Richard Hobbs was sent down a second time to clean Sylvia and Stephanie was holding on to Sylvia's emaciated body and crying that it, it was actually at that point that, that Sylvia had passed away and 
all of the talk of giving her a warm bath and changing her clothes and laying her in bed and letting her rest was actually all post-death. And, and we'll get into some other stuff later, but we'll, we'll continue with the charges here. So, it took only a month for charges to be brought to a grand jury, and it was agreed that Gertrude Paula and John Banachewski, along with Richard Hobbs and Coy Hubbard, would all face first-degree murder charges. Stephanie, having only assaulted Sylvia the one time at school and immediately apologizing crying after her, was found to have no evidence that she participated directly in the abuse and torture. She agreed to testify against her family, Rich and Richard Hobbs and her boyfriend Coy Hubbard as long as she had immunity from prosecution. All defendants were found mentally competent to stand trial. The trial of the five people responsible for the death of Sylvia Lichen began on April 18, 1966. The prosecution announced they wanted to try all five together as they all five acted in concert to affect the death of Sylvia. They also said they would seek the death penalty against all five. So this is this is actually granted by the judge, and one of the reasons for it is they did not want to get into a situation where every member of this group of five is pointing the finger at somebody else, and the jury has to take a step back and say, we can't pin this on just one person because everybody's got the finger pointed in a different direction. As long as all five are being tried together, it doesn't matter if somebody points the finger at somebody else and then somebody points the finger at somebody else. They're looking at it as all five of these participants were involved in the death. So if they're even if they're pointing the finger at somebody else and somebody else is pointing the finger at them, they're all going to be found to be responsible for her death. Thankfully, the judge agreed to this. Both the defense and the prosecution dismissed any jurors who opposed anything detrimental to their side. Prosecution's going to dismiss any jurors that say they're against the death penalty, and the defense is going to dismiss any jurors that work with children or opposed to the insanity defense. Each defendant is going to have their own lawyer, and the lawyers for the children's are going to get together and say, we're all going to point the finger at Gertrude, and it was her influence, and they were afraid to not do what Gertrude told them to do, and meanwhile Gertrude is going to use the insanity defense. Jenny testified to the abuse her sister endured and refuted any claims by the defense that Sylvia had brought any punishment on herself at all, let alone the level of punishment she received. Several neighborhood children testified to being witness to the abuse and were often laughing about it, and they said it was very casual and everyone was just, quote, having fun with Sylvia, end quote. Gertrude would take the stand in her own defense, and she claimed she had no knowledge of the abuse and torture of Sylvia because her house was always filled with kids and it was a madhouse. She claimed she was focused on her own depression and denied abusing Sylvia at all. The psychologist who assessed Gertrude testified for hours on how evasive and uncooperative Gertrude was, but he stated she was sane when this happened and she was sane now. She knew right from wrong and she knew what she was doing was wrong. He was subject to intense cross-examination by the defense, but held his ground. While the prosecution argued that Gertrude and the children knew full well what they were doing, and to prove this, they pointed to the note Gertrude made Sylvia write two days before her death, which was also proof of the premeditation of the murder, the defense was relying on an insanity defense claiming 
what was done to Sylvia was so sick and depraved that it couldn't have been done by a sane person. So I'll take an aside now because we haven't had a case yet that deals with the insanity defense. And a lot of people outside of law enforcement or the courts and psychologists don't quite understand how the insanity defense works. Every state will recognize insanity differently in their courts, although most of them recognize what's called the monotony rule. And basically, what you have to do is you have to prove that if you're the prosecution, you have to prove that the person knew right from wrong. And if you're the defense, you have to prove that the that your client didn't know right from wrong. So for example, if somebody claims, like in this case, that they just weren't in their right mind for three months and abused and tortured this girl, then they must be insane. That isn't a true check and balance against right and wrong. An example of a case where insanity likely would work is if somebody is suffering from a severe mental illness and is suffering from whether it be auditory or visual hallucinations and severe paranoia and they believe to the very core of their being that they must go kill this person to stop the return of the Antichrist. And even then, if that person knows that they shouldn't have committed that murder, it's going to be a gray area in an insanity defense case. So you have to prove that that that, that person is so out of their mind at the moment that they make this choice that they don't actually understand what they're doing and it doesn't fit this case and it doesn't fit a lot of cases and the issues with any defense attorney that uses an insanity defense is part of the insanity defense is you have to admit that your client did what the prosecution is saying they did you can't say my client didn't do this but they were also insane it doesn't work that way. The defense has to say, yes, my, we admit that my client did this, but he was you know, mentally incompetent at the time, did not know right from wrong, and therefore he can't be criminally found to be liable for, for his actions. It's the reason we don't see the insanity defense a lot, and when it is used, it, it hardly ever works in the favor of the defendant. And... I'm just trying to think off the top of my head here of a few cases where the insanity defense would be used in recent history. And I'm trying to think, I might cover this at some point, but the Aurora um, movie theater shooting, the, the suspect in that, I want to say, tried the insanity defense. But the problem is, a lot of these suspects, they do certain things before, during, and after the crime that point towards their sanity and so it really has to be a case where anybody looking at this says there's no way not just because of what was done because people do crazy things all the time and they choose to do crazy things all the time it's not the act itself that's crazy it has to be the person's mindset at the time of the act before during and after and in almost all cases people know right from wrong they know they're not supposed to kill another person they choose to do it anyway and at that moment they've uh, destroyed any chance they have of, of using an insanity defense so 
Just a side note on the insanity defense, because people hear it and they think, just like this defense attorney here is, well, if somebody does something that's so messed up, they must be insane. And another case is uh, talked about now a few times the the Watts family case. You know, people take a step back and say, how could any sane person murder their pregnant wife and their two small children? Well, it's yes, the act itself to any sane person seems insane. But that doesn't mean that the person making those choices at that time was acting with such mental depravity that they didn't understand right from wrong. So again, just just a sidebar on on that. And we'll, if it comes up again, at least I'll have discussed it and I can reference the remember that talk we had about the insanity defense. The jury wouldn't take long to come back and find... Gertrude was guilty of first-degree premeditated murder and sentenced to life in prison. Paula was found guilty of second-degree murder and received life in prison. The boys were found guilty of manslaughter and were sentenced to 2 to 21 years. And since they were children, this was 2 to 21 years in a reformatory school because I think, I want to say Gertrude's son was right around that 14-year-old age and another one was 14 and Coy was 15, so... It was right on that cusp of being tried as adults uh, for these crimes and being tried as kids. Now, they were tried as adults, but the judge wanted them to go to reformatory school and gave them a 2 to 21 year sentence. I think to, if they didn't toe the line in reformatory school, they could go off to adult prison for up to the remaining years left. But it just, when I read that 2 to 21 year sentence, it's... I figured it was there was something more to it. But in 1970, the Indiana Supreme Court reversed the convictions of Paula and Gertrude on the grounds that the trial judge should not have dismissed the defense motion to relocate the trial due to the public outcry around the case. This is what we see a lot. We see a lot of anytime somebody's convicted, their defense will come out right away and say, we plan to appeal this. And almost immediately, those the same appeals come out on popular or I guess well-covered media cases it's almost always this if the judge refuses to grant a motion to move the trial somewhere um, they'll appeal on that grounds that the the, the defendant did not get a fair trial because too many people in that area we saw that in the um i saw that as a potential in the jamie kloss case i believe it was that case where the defense wanted was already going to be looking to, to move the trial because everybody in that part of wisconsin let alone the, the, the rest of the state and the country, knew about Jamie's kidnapping. But sometimes, depending on, on the case itself, I guess, and the public perception of the defendants, I guess in some cases the, the, the courts will look at that and say maybe this should have been moved somewhere else so that, especially in 1965, we don't have cable news channels covering court tv all this kind of stuff covering these trials uh, day in and day out so i guess the argument there would be if you'd move the trial to somewhere that people hadn't heard of the sylvia likens case and how absolutely terrible this woman was maybe she'd get a, a more fair trial but ultimately the result of this is going to be that both paula and gertrude are going to get put up for retrial in 1971. Now Paula is going to do a plea agreement to avoid trial and she takes a plea of voluntary manslaughter. 
And she's sentenced to 2 to 21 years in prison, just like the boys were, except she's an adult now. I believe I believe she was an adult at the time that this this sentence came down. And she's only going to serve, I think, one more year and then be released in 1972. Now, Gertrude's going to go through another trial in a new location, and she's going to be found guilty again of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. I've talked about sentences in the past, and people kind of go, life in prison, that means they're not seeing the light of day, right? No, life in prison is just a term to describe a life sentence which in some states can be 20 to 30 years, 20 to 40 years. I mean, the, the phrase 20 to life is thrown out there a lot. And in this case, I don't know the exact specifics of her sentencing language, but life in prison for Gertrude meant that she was up for parole in 1985. Now, this news is going to break, and this is only... 17 years or so 18 years after the original trial maybe you know pushing 20 years from the actual incident but not that far in terms of people's memories and this is going to send anger throughout all of indiana especially with the likens family and especially jenny they're going to demand that gertrude remain in prison we have to remember she did some of the most heinous acts of torture and neglect and abuse towards this 16-year-old girl in her care over the course of months and ultimately it leads to this girl's death and now people are hearing she's going to do 20 years and get out a petition gathers 40,000 signatures and this is in a time before the internet when i first read that and i said 40,000 signatures i'm like that's some people can get that for a city park now but this is before the internet so this is walking door to door or old style collecting actual physical signatures on a line um, of 40,000 signatures demanding that parole be denied and in this case that parole be permanently denied and Gertrude remain in prison for the rest of her life. That's what the petition was for. At her parole hearing, Gertrude minimalized her role in Sylvia's death, claiming that drugs that she took for asthma at the time made her not responsible for what happened. However, it would later say in the research that she did take full responsibility and wish that Sylvia hadn't died. The parole board took this into account and claimed that because Gertrude was a model prisoner, they granted her parole on December 4th of 1985. This to me is unexcusable. I, I don't care how model of a prisoner she was and it's clear by some of the language in the research that she didn't even take full responsibility for what happened, which means she can't be rehabilitated. I'm all for giving people a second chance in most situations. And even if somebody messes up, let's say they behind the wheel of a car while drinking and they run into a, another car and, and kill somebody, I don't have any sympathy for that person sitting in jail, but if they can come forward and say they knew what they did was wrong and they wished every day they could go back and change what they did and they do their full time and they're up for parole, I know it's going to hurt the victim's family to see that person walk free from jail, but that situation I'm going to be way more okay with than this situation. This was not a spur of the moment lapse of judgment 
thing. This was months and months, and she had to have known that Sylvia was going to die. I mean, she she had the note, made Sylvia write the note two days before she died, knowing full well that, that Sylvia was likely to die. And she had all the time in the world to seek medical attention and try to try to get Sylvia help. But at the time, she refused to take responsibility for her actions. She continued to fail to take responsibility for her actions, even up until at her parole hearing, and yet the parole board grants her parole. So I was just, when I read that, I was taken aback. I couldn't believe it. I thought for sure that with the signatures and the outcry and everything I'd be reading that she was sent back to prison for at least another 10 years or so, but that's not the case. Uh, Gertrude would change her name and move to Iowa. It's said by many that she never took full responsibility for her actions and continued to blame the medication she was taking for asthma for the abuse. Gertrude would die on June 6th of 1990 from lung cancer. Moving through the family here, after her parole in 1972, Paula also changed her name. However, she would go on to lie on employment applications and gained employment with children as a school counselor. In 2012, the truth of her past was discovered and she was terminated immediately. So I'm going to go right there and say that Apple doesn't fall far from the tree on that one. Just like her mother refused to take responsibility for her actions and after ending somebody else's life in the most terrible way possible, she did everything she could to get out of prison. Paula gets a, a sweetheart deal, a second chance at life, and she uses it to lie and gain employment with children as a school counselor and it just and i i didn't didn't want to read any further to see any information on her today i just i was just pretty done with this family after that so now the story would go on to be made into a 2007 movie called an american crime starring elliot page and katherine keener and here it is there's no hero in this story to be honest, I'm actually too depressed after making this episode to find much light in this story at all. I actually left out some of the worst abuse that Sylvia suffered because I felt it would be too much for the listeners, and to be honest, I didn't want to write or read it either. I got all my information for this case off of the Wikipedia site dedicated to the murder of Sylvia Likens, so if you are curious about some of the other abuse and stuff that she endured you're more than welcome to check out the website uh, sorry the wikipedia site however i just warn you it's extremely graphic and i did not want to include that in my episode so while true crime is inherently dark this episode was a little too dark and i almost didn't do it i actually started to write out this episode about three different times and deleted what i had done and rewrote it, deleted what I had done, and I finally decided in the end, Sylvia Likens deserves to have her story told, and she needs to be remembered for what happened to her. As hard as it is for us to hear this, it's not one of those things that because it's so bad, we should never talk about it again. And that's ultimately why I decided to, to do this case. However, I will say this, this, is, this was an extremely tough episode, but... Thank you everyone for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at True Blue Crime Productions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at True Blue Crime Productions. Appreciate everyone listening. You guys have a great day. Talk to you later. Bye.